Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Peter Van Osler came out this week and said that it was a federal minister. All the federal ministers have come out and said that it wasn't them and that there's been this, you know, obviously Scott Morrison said, oh, I'm not fast, I'm not worried about it, Could, couldn't care less, but, like, you can tell that obviously they care so much because they've put out this very coordinated sort of messaging. You could, wouldn't you love to have seen the talking points this week? Dot point one, Scott Morrison is not a psycho. Not a psycho. Discuss. Happy New Year. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me this week are... Paul Carr, Josh Butler. Daniel Hurst. Sarah Martin. And regular listeners will know the teams in the pod. Cave, that means we're about to do an Ask Us Anything episode. Now, if you're new to the show, uh, our format is very simple. Uh, clues in the title. You ask us the questions and we do our best to answer them. Josh is a new member of our team this year, so welcome, Josh. We're really thrilled to have you. Why don't you tell the listeners where you've been most oh, recently? Yeah, okay. um, I recently moved over from uh, a website called The New Daily here in the Press Gallery, um, now with The Guardian. I'm very excited to be here. Very happy to have you. Yes. Yay. Yeah, we are very pleased. <laughs> yes, anyway. Okay, let's kick off. Sarah, uh, you yes. are in the hot seat first. Now, this is a question, a sort of amalgamation a question from Jordan Jansen uh, at LMTM underscore on Twitter and Miss Mountebank. Sort of the question of the campaign, isn't it? Who do you see as a bigger threat to government-held seats, Labor, the Independents, the United Australia Party, or a combo of the three? And flowing from that, of the Independents that we know are in the field, who do you rate as having the best prospect of success? Well, a very good question, Jordan. Um, I think the short answer is all of them are a threat, um, but re it really depends on which seats you're looking at and which part of the country you're talking about. Um, I think Labor certainly is obviously a threat to coalition-held seats, most uh, certainly in Western Australia, um, where obviously UAP is not making any sort of, was, is not a moving part of note, um, and Clive Palmer is very much on the nose over there. Um, and I think Labor is obviously the bigger threat to the coalition in those marginal seats in South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania, seats like Boothby, Bass, Braddon, Chisholm, um, Independents are also certainly a threat, um, particularly for those inner city seats, government-held seats, 
held predominantly by moderates. Um, and the vibe I get speaking to government MPs is that Tim Wilson in Goldstein is probably the most at risk, where um, Zoe Daniels is um, campaigning quite strongly against him. Um, then there's those seats in uh, the sort of wealthier parts of Sydney, um, North Sydney, held by Trent Zimmerman, where Kylia Tink, uh, who's been backed by Climate 200, is making a tilt. McKellar, held by Jason Falinski, where Sophie Scamps is running, and Wentworth, where Allegra Spender is challenging Dave Sharma. And we know, obviously, Wentworth previously held by Karen Phelps. Um, so, look, I think for the independents, those are the seats really to watch. Um, I think it'll come down really to the, the work ethic of some of those sitting MPs, how hard they worked that electorate, um, how, you know, how many school ceremonies, how many, you know, <laughs> openings of envelopes they yep. have been to. Um, Sausage and, sizzles. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, I think it'll be a, a real test of that. Um, and then, of course, you know, the size of the general swing against the government um, and how dissatisfied, well, how much the, the sort of anti-Morrison swing um, damages them in those seats. But, you know, like someone like Dave Sharma, he's not a he's not a Tony Abbott type mm. figure. Um so you know, they're really interesting, but they're definitely the ones I'd say that the independents have the, be the best shot at. Um, in terms of UAP, uh, it's a really interesting one. Um, they are a threat, um, but I don't believe so much in terms of winning seats, but more just causing havoc with preference flows. Um, and that could be problematic for both major parties. Um, Murph had a story last week about um, whether or not Kelly, uh, Craig Kelly um, was open to preferencing uh, certain uh, government MPs dependent on whether or not they might support one of his private members' bills. Um, you know, at the moment, UAP, is, it's very much the campaign is a pox in both your houses. You can't trust Liberal, Labor or the Greens ever again. They're all awful. Um, they're really going to suck up that protest vote. Um, but I think one thing to watch is whether or not UAP sort of switches and turns the guns on Labor as they did in 2019. And that was really damaging for Bill Shorten and Labor last time. So I know there's some uh, nervousness in the Labor camp that if it's a pox in both your houses, then they probably can withstand that. Um, but um, if it's if it does if he does shift the guns onto Labor, then you know that that's obviously problematic for them. Um, and I think uh, UAP is definitely a threat in Queensland, where the, the the advertising is just unbelievable, and they've become. I think most MPs that you know say UAP has now sort of taken over that One Nation um, protest vote. Um, and also Western Sydney, I think, is an area to watch where um, in those some of those close contests, it's going to be very difficult to predict if those preferences, um, you know if they lose, you know, 5 to 10% um, to UAP, where those preferences yeah, land can skill. be consequential. So yeah. um, all a threat is the short answer, and that was my very long-winded no, no, answer no, to was, Jordan. That was, that was beautifully summarised, and, and as you can see, it is a key dynamic in the campaign. Now, Sarah, you ended up in that uh, in your last observation with New South Wales. Let's stick with New South Wales just for a tick. This one is from at JJ. Hi, at JJ. Um, how much are the results of the New South Wales by-elections a litmus test for the federal election, do you think? So this is the Super Saturday that's yeah. about, I think it's next, is it, next is it the 25th of 12th. February? Or, no, I, I think it's next weekend. I've, I've next lost. Next weekend, I think. Yeah, I think it's yeah. the 12th. Yeah, anyway, yeah. What are we now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What day? What, what day is it actually? Yeah. Exactly. Um, no, no, that's right. Uh, in the in the year of our Lord, twenty twenty two. Um yeah. So, uh, I, look, I, I think voters are generally pretty discerning between the state and federal elections. Um, I mean, it will be interesting to see how strong a, a general sort of anti-government swing is. Um, you know, we know that by elections are notoriously tougher incumbent governments, and swings are usually bigger against the government in a by-election scenario because you can lodge a protest vote without, you know, changing the government. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think these are really a litmus test 
test for the feds per se. Um, I, I, you guys might disagree. Um, but, you know, I thought it was interesting last week to see some of the state um, government ministers really amping up the anti-Canberra rhetoric. So yes. they obviously know that Canberra's a problem and trying to stop the stink, uh, you know, affecting their chances in those by-elections. Yeah, it is quite interesting. Uh, it just I'll chuck in a quick observation if anyone's got any um, thoughts on Sarah, but just... The other thing I reckon with those state by-elections, I hear both sides, people in both sides, whinging about the diversion of resources. Mm. Everybody wants to be getting their federal campaigns ready, ready to, ready to roll, and uh, and these by-elections, uh, a succession of people leaving basically by their own accord, is diverting resources at and a time. Diverting when, MPs you know, from yeah, exactly. states anyway, to federal states. But that's just to buy the bite. Now, we're going to go to Paul. Uh, from Bill Dodd. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm laughing just at the, because the, the, this question makes my brain hurt, but thank you for it, Bill. Uh, what's the chance of a half Senate election and a postponed general election to give the Liberals time to swap out ScoMo and deal with toxic pre-selections? That's a slight uh, paraphrase of your question, Bill. And uh, sticking with the Senate, we, uh, there's there's quite a few questions actually in my mentions about uh, you know all eyes on the House of Representatives and elections obviously but what about the Senate is are there any uh, uh, you know potential potentially interesting outcomes there so sticking with the first the half Senate go. Well, I actually joked about this uh, last year and the reason that the government might do it is to try and get more time to recover from COVID. Scott Morrison doesn't want the election uh, to be a referendum on the pandemic response. So you try and get on the other side of the Omicron wave uh, and to frame the election around the economy, not around COVID. Uh, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it would be an unmitigated disaster, uh, both for the optics of clinging on to power for as long as possible, but also just war game through it in your head. Uh, if the coalition has a bad result at a half Senate election, um, then, you know, Peter Dutton and maybe even Josh are armed with an argument to get rid of the get rid of the leader. He can't win an election. He hasn't got the special source. It's not going to be 2019 over again. We've got to get rid of him. If the coalition does better than expected or even just a status quo result, well, you've wasted an election because if you'd had the, the full House election at the same time, you would be returned for another three years. So, so really, there's no way to win doing that um, if you're Scott Morrison. So I don't, I don't think it'll happen. In terms of the Senate results, I think uh, Pauline Hanson will be returned in, in Queensland. Uh, I think given the, uh, you know, although it's a minority opinion, there are enough people that hate lockdowns and are sceptical about vaccines that we could see United Australia Party re-entering the Senate in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, because there are, there are parts of Sydney and Melbourne where where they're you know getting double digit double digit votes uh, in Tasmania, Lambie is not up for election, but she could bring another another senator uh, with her to have a larger block. I think Queensland is going to be the most interesting contest uh, because the expectation is that there will be two, possibly three, on the progressive side of Labor and Greens, but there is an almighty shit fight. Um, for the last spot on the on the or two on the conservative side, where James McGrath will get back to, uh, top of the coalition ticket, um, Matt Canavan second on that ticket, and Pauline Hanson, who has a strong personal vote, 
But then there is a shit fight between uh, uh, Amanda Stoker, the Assistant Attorney General, the Liberal Democrat, Campbell Newman, the former Premier, Palmer. It's really going to be on for, for young and old. An absolute galaxy of stars. Um, does anyone... I, I just want to make it clear that I blame Nikki Saver. I know you... I know you were toying with this idea last year, but I blame Nikki Sava for this entire conversation. If you're listening, Nick, thanks a bunch for nothing. Um, anybody got any counter views? The, on... the interesting part is, like, even before, I think before that Nikki Sava column, like, Anthony Green, the ABC's election guru, has been fielding questions. I've been watching this for, like, months. Like, people on Twitter are just, like, so convinced that they're going to do a half Senate election only and like every single day Anthony Green who is like you ever seen him he's very polite and very you know just gentlemanly kind of Anthony Green and I think he's sort of with all with all like the most respect I think he's like slowly like unhinging over how many questions he's getting over this like his like responses to people are getting increasingly more sort of like it's not happening please relax like well we blame Paul too it's a very conspiracy theory yeah it is like it's just like oh my god a half Senate by election oh yeah exactly please not the rules can allow it yes Let's see. Yeah, oh, oh, thank you, I don't disagree. Hairs. I don't disagree with any yes. of them. Thank you very much. Just saying anything can happen. Okay, all right. <laughs> We're coming back to you, Josh. Now, this okay. is a question from David Lamb. Uh, do we assume the leak of texts between Gladys Berejiklian and a federal minister is an attempt to destabilise Morrison? And a uh, supplementary question, why would a cabinet minister want to leak texts given the damage, does somebody actually want the government to lose so they can overhaul the Liberal Party? Well, it's, it's sort of like the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, there's sort of, you know, essentially two differing views of, of, of why the texts have been released and why at this time, and I guess there's only probably two people in the whole world that could sort of really answer that question, which is Peter Van Oslen, who's a journalist who aired them, and the minister who, who um, some, you know, allegedly leaked them. You sort of had sort of two camps, I guess, you know, th this week. Like straight away, I think a lot of people sort of went to, oh, you know, which person ticks all the boxes of being close to Gladys Berejiklian and maybe having a reason to not like Scott Morrison and, you know, likely being in New South Wales maybe because they're texting Gladys on that sort of, you know, very personal basis. And I think a lot of people went straight to um, a particular New South Wales minister who quickly came out the next day and said that he wasn't part of it, never heard of it, not his thing, he wasn't the source. But that was the exact same person that I think a few federal um, sources that sort of quietly or not so quietly sort of pointed the finger at and hinted at um, as soon as it sort of came out. But again, then there's, then there's the flip side of, you know, it, was it legitimately a federal minister who wants to sort of, I don't know, sound the alarm on Scott Morrison right before the election, leadership ambitions, all those sort of things in the source. Peter Van Oslo came out this week and said that it was a federal minister. All the federal ministers have come out and said that it wasn't them and that there's been this, you know, obviously Scott Morrison said, oh, I'm not fast, I'm not worried about it. Could, couldn't care less, but like you can tell that obviously they care so much because they put out this very coordinated sort of messaging. All the ministers who are standing up this week are saying, "Oh, it's been the most united cabinet we've ever seen," and "Oh, Scott Morrison's the best leader ever," and Stuart Robert coming out and saying, "Oh, I've known him more than you know. I, I know him. I know him more than anyone apart from his wife right. in the whole world." Yeah. Like it's you could. Wouldn't you love to have seen the talking points this week? Dot point one. Scott Morrison is not a psycho. Not a psycho. Discuss anyway. Okay. Does anyone else? Anyone have thoughts on this? Uh, it's that's a great summary. Anyone got any thoughts? I was I was just going to say that in all this, we shouldn't forget that you know, when Scott Morrison became prime minister, it was a miracle in itself because he's from the you know the smallest faction in the party. So when people are looking for for where to point the, the finger at, I mean, conservatives have a, an incentive to try and 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 boost Dutton's stocks. 
Morrison is prime minister because he won the votes of moderates in in that ballot against Dutton, uh, but uh, was criticised for his his treatment of, of Gladys and for trying to shift blame for the bushfires uh, onto the state level and onto New South Wales particularly. So it, it's sort of like you know who shot Mr Burns, the Simpsons episode, <laughs> where Everyone despite <laughs> despite despite it seeming to be a narrow uh, uh, field because of those criteria, it's actually much wider than, than you would think. And that's why it's so appalling to have the speculation play out for Morrison as it has. The other thing we don't know is when it was leaked. Yes. So, so you know, wouldn't draw too big an assumption about well, it. I saw, I saw PVO tweet a little earlier. He said that he'd been aware of the text for a while, but only authorised to yeah. use them recently. Um, so again, that, and that's, I guess that's the question of like, we've got all these things of, you know, when like these, these texts go back as far as the, the, you know, Hawaii trip and the bushfires and stuff. Like this is a long time that they've been hanging around and, you know, not to cast aspersions on anyone's motivation or journalism or what, or what have you. But I mean, it's such a, such a intriguing little, little on mod, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, Exactly. Uh, Sarah, we're going to come back to you, love. Uh, from Kev Morton, sort of, I guess, the logical extension of having to have dot point number one in your talking points pack, Scott Morrison is not a psycho. <laughs> what are the chances uh, of a spill before the election? Uh, we can all weigh in on this when Sarah leads us. Uh, and a subset of this, I just want to mention quite a lot of the questioners today uh were asking about Greg Hunt, mm. like would is there any prospect that Morrison would replace him with another health minister prior to the election? But let's do the spill first. Um, look, it's a really good question. I mean, you can never rule out a spill in Canberra, and um, as we all know, the last uh, two elections, the um, you know the the uh, MO has been uh, replace the leader and call the election, and it's worked. So, um, I mean, since then, the, the, they have changed the rules, but of course, rules can always be changed back. Um, but the rules were changed. I think it's two thirds or 75% of the party room has to um, vote to change leader, but, you know, half the party room can can vote to change the rule. So, um, you know, don't read too much into that. Um, uh, look, it, it, there's sort of been a surprising lack of leadership chatter, I think, despite how appallingly um, the government is doing in the polls and, and Morrison's personal standing. I mean, it's, it's now back to where it was um, when, uh, you know, Turnbull was rolled. So you would think you would think that there'd be a bit more chatter than there is. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure why that is other than the fact that, you know, perhaps there's no one agitating for it. Um, you know, Dutton, who was obviously previously agitating, uh, wouldn't have the support to to take the leadership. Um, and I guess Josh Frydenberg, who is um, the other sort of likely contender in such a scenario, um, isn't agitating as far as I can tell. Um you know, other than his normal <laughs> <laughs> propensity yeah. for self-promotion. Yeah. Hi, that, I'm Josh Frydenberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know, I, I do think, I, I think at this stage a spill is, is unlikely, but it would be interesting if he was tapped or if he decided to leave of his own accord. I mean, you can't rule anything out in, in politics. Um uh, it's a really crucial few weeks, I think, for the government. And and last, well, this week was about trying to reset the na- narrative 
obviously failed abys- abysmally with the, the press club address. Um, we've got Parliament resuming next week. The next few few weeks, um, I think, are really critical. And, you know, even even by saying that there's no leadership chatter now, that that could turn on a, on a dime. So Is this one of these things, and I'll, I'll pose my own question, is this one of these things where potentially like they'll come back to Canberra and after the horror opinion polls and all this talk and, you know, the text and whatever, like people start getting together and have mm. a little chat? Oh, definitely. Um, and there'll be a rallying of the troops, no doubt, and, a you know, disunity is death um, pep talk, as there always is at this stage of the cycle. Um, I think a lot a lot will depend on the feedback people are getting in their, um, you know, from their constituents. There's no doubt that everyone is angry and I think the government's, most MPs I've spoken to, the view is that they don't think, like, they, that they don't think this is really baked in yet, that it's still possible to turn it around and people are really pissed off because they've had a horrible summer and they just want to punch the next politician they see in the face. They don't care which one, like, they're all, they're all awful, they hate the world. Um, but whether or not, you know, the government can successfully do what Morrison tried to do last week, which is say, oh, this is, you know, this is not about what's happened. This is about what's to come. You know, that's going to be the key test, really, and the, what the election will ultimately um, turn on, I reckon. I thought it was interesting at the press club uh, that Morrison was asked why he was the best person to lead the coalition. And his answer was a comparison between himself and Anthony Albanese mm. inviting the the, the the scare campaigns of you know, you, you can't elect a Labor government. Um, it, it, it totally missed the point of the question, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, given how well you've performed over this term, like are you not worried about someone else trying to lead uh, lead mm-hmm. the coalition? And, and rather than defend his own personal qualities or um, or, or how he'd performed over the Let me count the ways the term, I'm better than Peter Dutton. <laughs> well, he, he instead, instead of doing that, he the you know, argument was just, well, you know, I, I managed to do it last time by having a very stark contrast uh, with Labor, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna play the hits. I'm just gonna mm. do that again mm. quickly. Anybody got any thoughts about whether Greg Hunt could be replaced before the election? I mean, personally, I'd be surprised, but anyone got a different view to that? I'll think about this a bit today when I went to Greg Hunt's press conference. Like, I think obviously ministers and people resign for elections all the time. Like, it's not like it's this extraordinary thing, but we are in such an extraordinary circumstance, I think, that, you know, you kind of really want someone, I think, with their hand on the rudder of the pandemic response. And you look at, you know, who's the other minister in the sort of health space is Richard Colbeck. I mean, Greg Hunt is that aged, he's aged care minister now as well. Yes. If he sort of takes off and there's no, you know, more senior one, does that leave Richard Colbeck in charge of sort of, mm. you know, not not the health portfolio, of course, but like the whole thing. I mean, I think I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of say here's the guy or the you know the the, mm. the, 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 person, the person who's yeah. taking over from Greg Hunt and give him a bit of time to sort of settle into the role. Yeah. Maybe. I think that'd be a hard one to hit the, hit the ground running on if you're, you know, first day back and you're the new health minister. Yeah, yeah. Hi, welcome to the pandemic. Do you mind? Yes. Uh, okay, so I, tracking back because I, I broke up uh, David Lamb's question there just for sense, but we're just going to come back to another element of David Lamb's question. This is about texts. He asks just of this incident, which has ended up dominating the week, um, should journalists be willing to play such an active part in internal party machinations? He means, like, obviously, should we be standing up at the press club saying, Shazam, I have these text messages, when you know people have motives and in, and usually if you are the recipient of the leaked texts, you know exactly what the motive is. So what do you reckon? 
What do we What do we think, Josh? Why don't you kick off? It is a tough one, and I mean, yeah, you know, there are so often times when you get a tip or a little call or whatever it is, and you you know, in in this job that you know that it's based on something that's more than just the goodness of someone's heart or they're being a good pal or you know, blowing the whistle. I think a lot of this sort of stuff that you get dropped or leaked or whatever is is has some sort of political motivation to it, and that sort of comes down to your I don't know your own high and mighty journalistic integrity and and that sort of stuff. Um. I don't know. I, I I read some stories this morning that maybe these texts have been around for a little while, maybe been shopped around a little bit previously. And I don't, you know, I don't know anything more than what I've read. But I, I think it would be a this, this is a, like I think a really explosive, extraordinary sort of set of texts. I think it would be hard to sort of turn it down. It's a pretty juicy story. Um, but you know, at the same time, I mean, like we are what three months from an election. If this was uh, a leak that was designed to, I don't know start some leadership talk or, you know, destabilise the government before an election. I mean, it's sort of done the job. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's a really tricky one. I think everyone, every political actor has has motives and self-interest. You, you can't really, um, you know, compensate for that by suppressing what, what is very interesting and relevant information for voters to, to know how bad the PM's relationship with um, the former New South Wales Premier is. I think should probably just hit publish and then shut up about it, though. You shouldn't go on radio playing, you know, hotter, colder uh, games about who it is. Yes, and also, you know, one thing that was missing from the story was context, the original story. So it would be helpful to have had, you know, if you're going to proceed with a story like that, it would be helpful to proceed with a bit more context about exactly when particular texts happened. We know one of them or one part of it was around the bushfires. We don't know when all the others are necessarily. A bit more context about exactly what, you know, what, you know, Cladis Berejiklian was responding to when making those particular comments. Like, I just feel that there's a bit of context lacking. So, you know, you've always got to weigh at motivations of sources, absolutely. Uh, And if you're going to proceed with a story like that, ideally, there'd be more context around it so that people can weigh up the significance of it. Sarah? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, I agree. I think completely devoid of context as it is, um, it makes it very difficult to judge. I think the other thing, you know, we're all aware that politicians call other politicians awful things all the time. Um, and, you know, you can sort of imagine the number of uh, MPs and ministers scrolling through their text messages um, once that story broke, working out, you know, whether it was their was, terrible thing that they'd said either. on a particular day. Um, <laughs> was it me? But the other thing I think... Context is super important, but also emphasis. I mean, I don't know if Peter Van Onselen really emphasised the motive enough in um, in reporting that story, and perhaps you know maybe that was for his source protection. Um, that's obviously a judgment that he made, but um, I, I think you know perhaps as a journalist you have a responsibility to um, emphasise the motive of the leak, not just the, the the content matter that was leaked. No, I think we covered that well, Daniel. We're coming to you. So this question is from Olivia White. And again, it's sort of like the $64 million question, isn't it? Um, Can we trust opinion polls this time around? And are some polls more reliable than others? And also from Tennant Reid, have we, uh, uh, Tennant, to be clear, is works in an industry association and the we, uh, I think, refers to us and, and people orbiting around the political class. Have we all overcompensated for the polling misses and interpretive excesses of the 2019 election? Both really good questions, Daniel. Uh, I think, you know, polls are not predictive. They're a point-in-time measure. It's, it's interesting to look at how 
you know, when there's a significant change over time in, in what in the same poll shows against the previous version of that same poll. Um, but they're not predictive. They're a point in time thing. And I do think there's a bit of a collective sort of media um, caution this time around about about how to interpret them and how to sort of avoid being seen to be, you know, suggesting a particular outcome is a fait accompli. I'm not going to say which poll is better than which poll, but I do think there's a bit of caution this time around and, um, you know, you've got to keep in mind things like margins of error and so on um, and and bear in mind that it's a point-in-time measure. Just quickly, um, uh, certainly I think in... Uh, Josh wasn't with us at this at this time, but in the 2019 election... I think one of the regrets that we had, Sarah, was, and and all of us, right? We all went out doing seat profiles. Uh, we had a we had a pretty clear sense, I think, when we came back from those assignments that the that the, the picture being painted by the opinion polls was not the reality on the ground, and uh, and we sort of got into pseudoscience mode and then second guessed our own reporting and our own instincts. Um, and it turned out we were right and the polls were wrong. So um, I think it's, yeah, I, I think that lesson has settled on all of us. I, I think one really interesting thing just to point out on the polling is, um, and I had a look at the a April 2019 figure um, just before this, but so April 2019, like a month before that election, there was an 11% other vote and a 4% undecided and excluded. So yeah. Not not counted. At the moment, it's 11% others and 7% uncommitted and excluded. So combined, that's a big chunk of the vote. And a lot of those people are the disengaged, um, you know, low political um, awareness. Yeah. And a lot of those people decide seats. So I think we just have to be always aware of that chunk of people that um, don't know, don't care, are going to make up their mind in the queue on election day. And, um, you know, that 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 um, that's something that I think has become more apparent and has made opinion polls less reliable than they used to be. Yeah. Well, there's a whole, con we could do a whole pot on this yeah. in terms of, um, you know, the difficulties of getting representative samples now. Uh, but that point of uncertainty, that's something that we, in reporting the Guardian Essential poll, we've tried to bring to the fore, this element of uncertainty in any, in any fortnightly result. So, OK, so we're back to Paul uh, from Michelle. Uh, you reported on this story this week uh, on the big money in politics, who's donating and what kickbacks do they get? Well, there are really two types of donors. Uh, one is, you know, a partisan who is, is giving a donation because they're trying to tip the scales for one side of politics or the other. So you get unions who pay affiliation fees to Labor. You get big corporates like Pratt Holdings. Anthony Pratt's company was the biggest donor this time with $1.3 to the Liberals. Uh, and, you know, Meriton gave a big chunk of cash to the Liberals, particularly in New South Wales as well. So that's one type. The other type is better each ways, you know, want to be in suite with both major parties, so give money uh, to both of them. And there was something like a million dollars from fossil fuel companies this time round, went a little bit more to the conservative side, but they gave money to both sides of politics. In terms of what uh, companies and individuals get for that. It's mainly access uh, to, to, you know, know that you'll be sitting at the business forum with a minister or get your get your calls returned, that sort of thing. It's not really a straight quid pro quo for policy like like lots of people, you know, uh, fear might be the case. And the thing to remember is that, you know, cash 
might help uh, grease the wheels of a campaign. But the parties always have a much bigger incentive, which is to the electoral imperative of needing to win votes. And if you look at something like fossil fuels, uh, Labor's policy, it has, it, they've softened their position on, you know, public subsidies uh, for fossil fuel projects, not because these companies uh, give them money, but because they got spanked on this issue at the 2019 election. The, the, the both ways on, on Adani um, and just the, the impression that they were anti, um, you know, extractive industry jobs really hurt them in Queensland. And that is going to have a far, far bigger effect on their policy at this election than however, who's giving however much money. Nicely summarised, uh, Daniel. Uh, woo. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a batch of foreign and defence questions that have come for Daniel, who, of course, deals with foreign and defence in our office. Um, I, I just want to thank the audience for these. They were really good. It was really hard to sift them out. So we've, we're going to do three um, uh, and... and Move it along a bit. Um, okay, from George Hanna, um, what will the government do to restart a dialogue with China? Uh, from Robert Cox, given there seems to be a trend of short-term and seemingly ad hoc decisions about defence spending, will either side commit to a broad-based review of procurement needs? Um, I would say editorially, what a good idea. Um, from uh, Tim Fitzsimons or Simmons, I think it is, Tim. Uh, we hear next to nothing these days about Australia's relationship with Indonesia. What's the state of the relationship? So in turn, Daniel, what are your sure, thoughts? Sure, we'll go through them as quickly as possible. So on China, I don't see any prospect of, of the Australian government making any concerted push before the election. We're months away from election. Morrison is warming up to try to you know, accuse Labor of being soft on China, uh, that doesn't stack up, doesn't stack up at all. Uh, but in that context, there's no prospect that there'll be some sort of gesture made by um, the Australian government to try to resume talks. Last week, the new Chinese ambassador arrived in Australia with some positive sounding messages, just words, but messages about wanting to get the relationship back on the right track. Um, you know, so long as there's mutual respect, we know that phrase mutual respect means that the Australian government shouldn't be criticising China over Taiwan, Hong Kong and other issues like that. So, you know, there's a view in the Australian government that the problems in the relationship are structural. It's not just a matter of words. Um, uh, Peter Dutton, within hours of the ambassador arriving, said he'll continue speaking out about China's belligerent approach. So they didn't take up that offer of, of trying to find a new way through with the new ambassador. So status quo for the time being. Um, on defence spending, look, interestingly, two weeks before AUKUS was announced and upended everything. Um, the Labor Party actually committed to, uh, if they're elected, uh, launch a defence force posture review. Uh, that would be looking at things like bases, um, exercises, the overall posture of the defence force, new challenges like cyber attacks and so on. Um, then AUKUS came along. I'm sure that's still Labor's pledge to do that force posture review. Um, but in terms of the big sort of defence spending, the trajectory's locked in. Uh, Labor doesn't want to be able to be accused of being weak on national security. So, you know, they'll be on lock, in lockstep with the government on increasing defence spending. They'll have to look at those projects as well. But, you know, big defence procurements are locked in over, you know, long periods of time. We saw the fallout from scrapping the French submarine contract. That's what happens when you when you chop and change. So, you know, I think the main settings are locked in. Uh, on Indonesia, 
uh, they're actually hosting the G20 this year, so <laughs> we hopefully will hear a yes. bit more Hello, in Australian discourse. Hello, Jakarta. Um, <laughs> we did have a, a new defence, a new sorry, we did have a new trade deal that came into force between Australia and Indonesia in 2020. There are things happening. Early September, Peter Dutton and Maurice Payne went to Jakarta. They talked about you know increasing defence cooperation, having more joint exercises, Indonesian troops training in Australia alongside Australian troops. Um, that again was just before AUKUS. There was fallout over the deal, the fact that Australia didn't tell Indonesia in time or ahead of it. Um, Indonesia and Malaysia have been the ones who've been saying, well, we're worried about an arms race, nuclear non-proliferation issues. So Maurice Payne had to go back in November to reassure them. Those issues are still playing out, but interestingly, there's a bit of pragmatism seeping in in Jakarta. The Defence Ministry, the Defence Minister Prabowo, said in November that he understands and respects Australia's decision. So, you know, there's there, there was a bit of um, uh, concern about AUKUS when it was announced. Um, the government, the Australian government's had to mop that up. Uh, we'll see what happens this year, but you know, it's definitely an important relationship. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last one all in, everybody. And I, I just put this one in because I could hear uh, at Top Cat's um, uh, mood, I suppose, in pounding the keyboard for this particular question. Uh, are Australian voters really so comprehensively shallow that they'll succumb to a $16 billion barrel of slush and look past Morrison's catastrophic ineptitude? Discuss. Sort of depends what's in the barrel of slush, doesn't it? Like, if it's just, I don't know, money for boring stuff, maybe not. But if it's like, seriously, like if it's something like they're going to extend, you know, the Lomato and give tax cuts to everyone, like five minutes before the election, like maybe that is something that will swing a lot of votes. It probably will. Um, if it's something that's not quite as splashy, maybe it won't. Like it's, you know, Labor might make all these billions of dollars of announcements before the election. It's not as though, you know, Labor's on, on the one hand with their pockets turned out and the government's got all this cash. Like, they're both going to make these big-time announcements and, 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 you know, I would... I know Albanese been getting a lot of questions in the last few weeks of, like, oh, where's your agenda? What are you going to spend? Where, like, where, what are you doing this and that? And he's had, sort of, he had to sort of come out and defend it a lot and, like, you know, list off, like, a laundry list of all their policies and say, oh, we've done childcare, we've done this climate thing no one thought I could do, done this and that and da-da-da. And I think, you know, they're all... A lot of them are strong policies and they've gotten some some praise in the press and that sort of thing. But I, I sort of do wonder people get to the polls on election day and sort of try to think of what Labor's policies are and, like... I don't know if a lot of them so far have been big grabby ones, like if they're things that are going to turn a Liberal voter to a Labor voter or a swing voter to a Labor voter or something like that. Like, I, I think there's probably some big splashy promises Labor are going to have to roll out as well at some point. So depends what's in the slush barrel, I guess. I thought it was interesting that um, Labor MP Andrew Lee uh, who's an economist, had an academic paper that actually found that, you know, despite Labor going troppo over the car park rorts and the sports rorts, actually found that these made no impact in, in, in how people voted by sort of running a regression on the, the seats that got all the cash and the general swing in the election, and he found it didn't swing anything. I almost got the sense, like, uh, the coalition promised all that money uh, last time because they needed something to talk about. Labor had um, even bigger spending promises about, you know, cancer out-of-pocket costs and hospitals and the childcare workforce. So in order to just have something to talk about, they needed to be doling out what were smaller amounts of money on the on the coalition side. Uh, but I think the thrust of the question um, 
is right, that uh, Morrison has more of a record this time. So it's more likely that more people are going to be voting on, do we think he's competent? How do we think he has performed in the last three years rather than a sort of calculus about what is my seat getting? Agree that agree that this time it'll be more focused on Morrison's personal appeal or otherwise he's lost a lot of skin in the last few months or years. <laughs> I don't know. I've lost sense of time. How long has it been? Um, <laughs> lost sense of time. Uh, integrity issues are really important and, um, you know, obviously the government has stonewalled on a proper federal ICAC and other things like that. So, um, you know, hopefully the big cash spending pledges will also be accompanied by focus on what is being offered on integrity. Mm, well said, Sarah. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I mean, we know some of the pork, some of the $16 billion that was in my EFA, we know some of what that money is now, like the reef announcement, the uh, manufacturing thing in the press club speech, um, some of the medical uh, supplies, I think, has, has also come out of that um, $16 billion. Um, I think Josh is right, like there, was, there will be some tax something in the, in the budget. Um, uh, you know, I think those things, you know, Barnaby Joyce always, when he's asked about this, always talks about, oh, you know, voters love pork, you know, like the, it's something for the for the incumbent MP to to um, campaign on. And, you know, you often see their campaign flyers, um, which will promote, you know, the upgrade to the library, the car park, the, you know, the local school, whatever. So they, they uh, you know, they, it can be important spending for um, particularly, and it is an advantage for the incumbent MP. And we know that in the um, analysis of some of the um, grant funding, it, it, it does overwhelmingly benefit the incumbent. So um, that's not necessarily a negative um, for vo in voters' minds. Um, so, yeah, definitely one to watch. But I think this time the dynamic is different with, um, you know, the, the government having copped a lot of heat about um, how those grants have been allocated. Mm. Well, uh, that's the end of the questions uh, for this episode. Uh, as I said, you know, we, we're very, very grateful for how seriously you take these episodes and we try to uh, meet your seriousness with a serious conversation. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you've noticed that I have the best team in the world. Uh, just say that again, I really do. Uh, I also have the best team in the world on this podcast. Uh, welcome back from parental leave, Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. I also have the best audience on this podcast. Uh, thank you to all of you. Uh, for getting in touch, for saying, when is the pod coming back? Um, well, the pod is back and the pod is <laughs> will be back uh, in its normal uh, weekly cycle uh, for a really important year in Australian politics. Federal election years are always incredibly important years. We'll be working really hard uh, in our bureau to bring you uh, the news as it happens, preferably before it happens, uh, to keep you up to date with live coverage, uh, to do analysis, to ask the right questions, to fact check, um, and, you know, have our usual mission, which is uh, tell the truth and shift the dial. So thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we will be back next week. Good God, it just, it just fell into my head. <laughs> Parliament is back next week. So we'll be back with you then. Until then, take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.